Welcome back to Roshcast for episode 30. Before we get going with this week's new material, we have two quick announcements. Yeah, first we'd like to congratulate Sean for winning the Trauma Ringtone Challenge by being the first to respond after the episode release. An honorable mention also goes out to Nick and Dina Carr. We'll have more competitions in the future, so keep a lookout for those. If you happen to have ideas for competitions or prizes, send me an email at nachi at roshreview.com. That's N-A-C-H-I. Or tweet to us at at Roshcast. Today's episode also marks the launch of a new partnership with the EM Clerkship Podcast. For those of you who are not familiar, Zach Olson does an outstanding job covering core EM content. We aim to do a great job testing core EM content. The partnership was pretty obvious to both of us. So going forward, we're going to occasionally focus episodes on a specific topic, a topic that was recently covered by the EM Clerkship Podcast. We'll cover three, maybe four questions on that specific area, in addition to the usual random assortment. You can listen to the podcast in either order. Either start with Roshcast to see where you stand, and then head over to EM Clerkship for more detail. Or alternatively, start with EM Clerkship to learn the nuts and bolts, and head back over here to test yourself. Anytime we do these joint releases, we'll plan to match our midweek release with their release a few days earlier on Sunday. Well, that's enough for announcements. Let's do another rapid review based on some of the recent posts by Yehuda on the Rosh Review blog. Jeff, what are the criteria for diagnosing Kawasaki disease? You need to have a fever for five or more days and four of the following five criteria. Bilateral bulbar conjunctival injection, oral mucous membrane changes, peripheral extremity changes, a polymorphous rash, and cervical lymphadenopathy. And what's the treatment? The treatment for Kawasaki's disease is IVIG and aspirin. Changing topics a bit, for Wernicke's encephalopathy, what are some of the ocular findings? With Wernicke's encephalopathy, you may see ocular motor dysfunction like nystagmus, lateral rectus palsy, and conjugate gaze palsies. And lastly, this is thought to be caused by a thiamine deficiency. Do you remember if you replaced thiamine first or glucose first? Classic board question. The standard teaching is that you should always replace the thiamine before glucose. Interestingly, though, the Life in the Fastlane blog covered this in detail, and there's never actually been a reported instance of a glucose bolus precipitating Wernicke's. That's for another time, though. Let's get started with the new material. Since EM Clerkship just did their episode on seizures, that'll be our focus for this episode, too. You're up first. You're caring for a 60-kilogram patient who's been seizing for 30 minutes. You've already administered 4 milligrams of IV lorazepam and 1,200 milligrams of phenytoin without termination of the seizures. Which of the following should most likely be your next step? Is it A, administer another bolus of IV phenytoin, B, administer IV phosphenytoin, C, administer IV pentobarbital, or D, administer IV sodium bicarbonate? Scary situation. So this guy's been seizing for 30 minutes continuously, definitely in status. You've already correctly tried benzos and phenytoin. It's time to step up to the next agent. I'm going to go with choice C, IV pentobarbital. That's correct, but let's back it up for a second. Can you define status epilepticus for us? Sure. Status is either two or more continuous seizures without full recovery or continuous seizure activity for greater than five minutes. That's definitely correct, and this gentleman is certainly in status. You briefly alluded to the status algorithm, but let me spend a second or two on it. First-line agents are benzodiazepines, either lorazepam, diazepam, or midazolam, IV or IM. Midazolam has the fastest onset, but lorazepam has a longer half-life. Diazepam has the longest half-life, and it can also be given rectally. If the patient fails to respond to benzodiazepines, second-line agents include phenytoin or phosphenytoin, valproic acid, phenobarbital, or levetiracetam. Generally, phosphenytoin is preferred over phenytoin as it can be given more quickly. And lastly, as this question gets at, if all of these measures fail, we're left with third-line agents, either pentobarbital or propofol. 
In the ED, propofol is typically more readily available, so most of us will reach for that first. Propofol also has the advantage of its short half-life and rapid clearance. Once the patient is stabilized, it can be easily discontinued. Keep in mind, though, that at this point, the patient will almost certainly require intubation, as respiratory depression is a side effect of most of the medications we're discussing. For sure. And for patients in status, your threshold to intubate should be extremely low, as the seizure itself puts the patient at risk for apnea and aspiration. Don't forget that if you paralyze for intubation, the patient may still be seizing, even if you can't see the outright clinical manifestations. Great point. Let's move on to the next question. A 33-year-old man presents with a seizure lasting for five minutes. EMS administered two milligrams of lorazepam with cessation of seizure activity. On presentation, the patient is confused. The medication list includes metoprolol and isoniazid. During evaluation, he has a second and third seizure. What adjunctive therapy should be given? Is it A, folic acid, B, phenobarbital, C, pyridoxine, or D, sodium bicarbonate? This is bread and butter when it comes to seizures. The patient is having a seizure on isoniazid or INH. In this case, the typical agents may not work, and instead choice C, pyridoxine, is needed. We also forgot to mention that in all seizing patients, the patient's blood glucose must be assessed as hypoglycemia is another possible precipitant for a seizure. In this patient, the failure to respond to benzodiazepines prompted further consideration and looking at the medication list. Isoniazide was found. INH toxicity is easily treatable with pyridoxine or vitamin B6. In fact, in any patient in status on INH, empiric pyridoxine should be given. It's a pretty low-risk intervention with a very high potential reward. And let's run through the other answer choices here too. Choice A, folic acid, that's just not a treatment for status. Choice B, phenobarbital, that's a very reasonable second-line medication, but in this case, the patient's potential INH toxicity should be addressed first, or at least concurrently. And lastly, choice D, sodium bicarbonate, that can be given in cases of TCA or aspirin-induced status epilepticus. So in any seizing patient, make sure the patient is protecting his or her airway and initiate treatment with a first-line benzodiazepine. Definitely, definitely check a finger stick. Failure to respond to first-line agents should prompt a hunt for possible toxic or infectious causes while you prepare your second-line agent. All right, we're moving out of the resuscitation bay and back to the general ED for the next one. A 75-year-old nursing home patient presents with abdominal distension. Vital signs are normal and the patient is non-toxic appearing. An abdominal x-ray is obtained, which you can see up on our blog, which shows a markedly enlarged and twisted sigmoid. Which management is indicated? Is it A, endoscopic detorsion, B, intravenous antibiotics, C, observation and reassessment, or D, surgical resection? Well, your description basically gave this one away. This is a non-toxic older patient with an enlarged and twisted sigmoid colon. This is likely sigmoid volvulus, and it should be treated with choice A, endoscopic detorsion. Exactly. Even though the patient is non-toxic at this time, the twisting can lead to vascular compromise and eventually ischemic injury. If it isn't addressed promptly, as gas and liquid continue to flow into that segment, you can see marked and dangerous dilatation of the colon. In this question, the right answer was clearly endoscopy, and in this case, it would probably be a flex sigmoidoscopy. You should also know that these patients often eventually need surgery to prevent recurrence. Excellent point. Two other quick points before we move on. This isn't a diagnosis typically seen in young people. Risk factors include elderly patients, nursing home patients, bedbound patients, and those with chronic constipation. The onset is usually insidious with slowly progressive pain and increasing abdominal distension. Patients may note constipation and eventually vomiting. The diagnosis can be made by plain films, which have a pretty low specificity, or CT scan. They can also be made by a contrast enema. Right, and the classic board's association there is that you should look for a quote, bird's beak appearance of contrast on barium enema. Oh no, someone's seizing again. 
a 26-year-old woman with a history of dysmenorrhea and depression, presents to the ED after having a seizure witnessed by her husband. He reports finding her on the bathroom floor with an empty bottle of pills. Which of the following non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications did she most likely ingest? Is it A, celecoxib, B, ibuprofen, C, methanamic acid, or D, rofecoxib? Hmm, tough question, and I'm not too sure. I know that choice D, rofecoxib, isn't on the market anymore because that increased rates of MI and stroke. Choices A and B, celecoxib, and ibuprofen, they're fairly common NSAIDs, and I doubt it's either of those. This leaves me to choice C. I'll go with methanamic acid. We had a logic through a really tough question. Methanamic acid is absolutely the answer here. Methanamic acid is an analgesic used specifically for pain with menstruation. In the setting of an acute overdose, seizures typically occur two to seven hours following the ingestion. Unlike INH toxicity, which does not respond to benzos, methanamic acid-induced seizures are generally well-controlled with benzos. Patients typically recover quickly and completely following treatment. And of course, don't forget to check for a concomitant overdose of the typical agents and discuss the case their psychiatrists have indicated. Given her history of depression, a suicide attempt should be considered here. That question was pretty short, so I'll load up the next question for you as well. An eight-month-old child presents to the emergency department having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Her mother reports that she's bottle-fed and has been diluting her formula secondary to financial strains. Her serum sodium is found to be 120 milliequivalents per liter. She weighs 8 kilograms and is actively seizing. What is the most appropriate dose of 3% hypertonic saline to administer to this patient? Is it A, 16 mLs of 3% saline? Is it B, 4 mLs of 3% saline? Is it C, 64 mLs of 3% saline? Or is it D, 80 mLs of 3% saline? Hyponatremia-induced seizure. This is treated with hypertonic saline at a dose of 2 milliliters per kilogram. So the answer here is choice A, 16 milliliters of 3% hypertonic saline. And over what period of time do you administer that dose? You should aim to give it over 10 to 60 minutes. Exactly. This child experienced hyponatremia secondary to over-dilution of her bottle feeds. This is unfortunately all too common in our population given the financial strains many families live under. But don't forget that this can also happen in the elderly, especially those who can't communicate or are fed by PEG or G-tube. In such patients, giving free water is a common and appropriate practice, but the serum lights must be monitored closely. I've actually seen this many more times in the elderly than I've seen it in infants. Let's finish up this episode with one more pediatric seizure question. A full-term three-week-old girl is brought in by her parents who report that she's been acting funny for two hours. They notice that she's been moving her lips nonstop. She's afebrile and vital signs are normal. Her exam is notable only for rhythmic lip-smacking movements. What's the most appropriate next step to take with this baby? Is it A, administer phenobarbital, B, initiate EEG monitoring, C, perform a CT scan of the brain, or D, provide reassurance that this is normal behavior. Tough question again, but I'm going to play it safe and assume that this lip smacking is actually a seizure, so I'll treat with choice A, administer phenobarbital. That's right, this lip smacking is most definitely a neonatal seizure. Don't forget that unlike adults, neonatal seizures are more likely to be focal than tonic-clonic, and they can be really subtle. Common manifestations include lip smacking, eye deviation, staring, rhythmic blinking, and bicycling movements. We didn't talk about this yet, but this question does get at it. Phenobarbital is the drug of choice for the treatment of neonatal seizures. But your job isn't done with just treating the seizure. A full septic workup is a must for neonates with seizures. In such cases, a workup consists of a CBC, blood cultures, chemistry, urine studies, chest x-ray, and an LP with proper CSF studies. Empiric antibiotics and acyclovir should be started while waiting for the results.
Oh, and of course, I think you forgot to mention this. Don't forget that a thorough exam for signs of trauma and non-accidental trauma, such as bruising, bulging fontanelles, and retinal hemorrhages is certainly warranted. Definitely not something you want to miss. Great points. Before we close out with a rapid review, let me quickly run through some of the other more subtle clinical manifestations of neonatal seizures. In terms of ocular phenomena, you might see horizontal deviation of the eyes, sustained eye opening with fixation or blinking. In terms of oral buccal movements, you might see a repeated chewing, lip smacking, or a cry grimace. The limb movements are also seen like pedaling, stepping, or rotary arm movements. In term infants, you can see apneic spells. All right, so let's close out with the rapid review. Status epilepticus is defined as two or more continuous seizures without full recovery or continuous seizure activity for greater than five minutes. Benzodiazepines are the first-line agents for status. Midazolam has the fastest onset, but lorazepam has a longer half-life. Second-line agents for status include phenytoin, phosphenytoin, valproic acid, phenobarbital, or levetiracetam. Phosphenytoin is preferred as it can be given more quickly. Third-line agents include pentobarbital and propofol, along with likely intubation. All seizing patients need to have their blood glucose checked. In patients on INH having seizures, pyridoxine should be administered. It can also be administered empirically if there's a concern for INH toxicity and the patient isn't responding to the typical agents. For sigmoid volvulus, the treatment of choice is endoscopic detorsion, typically a flexible sigmoidoscopy. On barium enema of a patient with sigmoid volvulus, the classic finding is a bird's beak appearance. Methanamic acid is an NSAID given for menstrual pain. Overdose can cause seizures two to seven hours after ingestion. For seizures related to hyponatremia, 3% hypertonic saline at 2 cc's per kilogram should be given, with a max of 100 cc's over 10 to 60 minutes. Neonatal seizures are more likely to be focal than tonic-clonic. Look for signs like lip smacking, eye deviation, staring, rhythmic blinking, and bicycling movements. Phenobarbital is the drug of choice for neonatal seizures. When a neonate presents with a first seizure, a full septic workup is warranted and empiric antibiotics should be given. All right, so that concludes the new content for Roshcast episode 30. Before we finish, we want to let you all know about a new competition being hosted by Rosh Review. Go to our blog site at roshreview.com blog for the full details and a chance to win $1,000. The deadline for submission is September 15th. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. There are also tons of other great free resources there to help prepare you for the boards and the wards. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast and at Rosh Review. You can always email us at Roshcast at RoshReview.com with feedback, corrections, and any suggestions. And don't forget that you can help us pick questions by identifying ones you want us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. And lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality, rapid review.